0: We are in a, if you're here for the first time today, we're in a series through the New Testament book of Revelation. It's easy to find. It's the very last book of the Bible. Um, and we're just gonna do this morning, I, I wanted to do a review and I thought, why not just do kind of a, a pop quiz? So, um, here we go, multiple choice. You can test yourself, honor system. Here we go. Who wrote the book of Revelation? Was it Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? John. John, okay, next. Where was he when he received the revelation? Was he in Jerusalem or Patmos or Galilee or El Salvador? Patmos. Patmos. Okay, good. From whom did he receive the revelation? Was it God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit or FedEx? Huh? What is it? Be God the Son. Number four. What was John commanded to write? A, things he had seen. B, things that are. C, things yet to take place. Or D, all of the above. All of the above. You guys are astute. What did John first see in chapter 4? Was it an angel or pearly gates or an open door or the new Jerusalem? An open door. door. You guys are on it. What did he hear? Uh, Our God reigns or imagine there's no heaven. Or my sweet Lord. Or D, come up here. I'm up here. Number seven, what did he see next? A sectional or recliner, a throne or a park bench? <laughs> a throne. Number eight, who was seated on the throne? Was it the angel Gabriel or Michael the Archangel or the Virgin Mary or God the Father? God the Father. Number nine, who else was there? Was it three kings, 24 elders, four living creatures, 12 apostles, eight maids a milking, seven swans a swimming? A and D, E and F, B and C, or X, Y, and Z? <laughs> you, sorted, you, you just sorted right through that, didn't you? Number 10, what accomplishment did they worship him for? Was it the creation or the exodus or the virgin birth or chocolate? Chocolate. First service, they all said chocolate. What is it? A, the creation. Number 11, extra credit. I found this quiz to be invigorating, inspirational, informational, or D, all of the above. <laughs> right answer was all of the above, just in case you're wondering. We're, we are in chapter 5 of Revelation today. I, I hope that you'll take notes. Um, it's, a, it's a detailed passage. Uh, I'm going to do my best to unfold it to us. And so let's stand as we read it together. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is God's word. You may be seated. Uh, Chapter 5 of Revelation is one of the most amazing and uh, indeed uh, glorious, not a word I use often, glorious chapters ever written. Uh, Its setting is unparalleled. The creator of everything is seated on his throne, surrounded by an emerald rainbow, um, encircled by four angelic beings, uh, uh, described as the four living creatures. Around them are 24 thrones. On those thrones are sitting 24 elders, it says, each of them wearing a crown of gold, In this case, uh, the victor's crown, probably something looking like laurel leaves and wearing white garments of righteousness. And just as chapter four focused first on an open door and a throne, chapter five has a focus as well. Chapter five centers on a scroll and a lamb. We're going to spend a little bit of time this morning thinking about that scroll So let's notice together, first of all, how John introduces it in verse 1. And then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. Uh, Recall with me from chapter 4 that the one whom John sees seated on the throne is none other than God the Father, It's he who is holding the scroll. Notice with me where he's holding it. It's in his right hand, the hand that's linked symbolically in the scriptures with power and authority. I'll say one other thing about chapter five for those of you who are taking notes. There's hardly a detail in this passage that doesn't matter. It is tightly packed. And and so, um, follow along, take good notes. John adds another detail that we might overlook. We might just read right by it. But again, it's essential to what he wants us to understand. And that is that the scroll bears writing both inside and out. Uh, In ancient times, people rarely uh, wrote on both sides of a scroll. Why was that? It was because normally only one side of a piece of parchment was smooth for writing. Uh, the other side was left rough, it was left uneven, uh, so that if a scroll, if there was a scroll that had writing on both sides, uh, you would know uh, pretty quickly that the nature of the message that it contained is going to be lengthy, it's going to be complex, it's going to be involved, and it's going to be very, very important. And we're about to experience that reality in the next several chapters that that uh, detail the the breaking of these seals and the opening of the scroll. So John adds that the scroll is sealed with seven seals. What's what's the significance of a seal? Fundamentally, uh, a seal is a mark of ownership. Uh, it's a mark of authority. So if you were to go over, for example, to the Capitol campus today and enter into the legislative building and stand in the rotunda, uh, you would see on the floor there the seal of the state of Washington. Uh, in the other Washington, when the commander-in-chief speaks uh, on his podium, you will see the seal of the president of the United States of America. You'll see that seal in other places, such as on his limousines and in other places. When a scroll was sealed in ancient times, uh, as, as in the present, a blob of hot wax would be dripped on the scroll and then someone would take a, a signet, whether it was a, a signet ring, for example, or, or just a stamp. And uh, that signet would bear the seal of the owner. And that would be pressed into the wax. And you may recall from Matthew 27 that when Jesus' tomb, uh, when Jesus body was entombed, that, that the Roman governor Pontius Pilate was asked and, and complied to seal the tomb. Uh, as a warning to would-be grave robbers to just stay away. The tomb was protected from that point on by the power and the authority of the empire. You may also recall from the New Testament that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we become his possession. God places his seal on us, uh, the mark of his divine ownership. Uh, We're sealed With the Holy Spirit. For example, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. A guarantee of what? Of our inheritance. Uh, To the Ephesians, Paul wrote, In Him, that is Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Well, who is worthy to open the scroll? In verses two to three John says, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy? Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Uh, this mighty angel is not named. Uh, we know the names of two angels, Gabriel, Michael. Uh, it may be another of the mighty angels of high rank and power. We're simply not told. But the question that he asks is a question for all the ages, for all of time and eternity. It, it, who is worthy? Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And it just hangs there. It, and it just lingers in the air of heaven like an accusation, like an indictment. Charles Swindoll characterizes the question as a cosmic recruitment effort. <laughs> I like that. Scouring every level of the universe. But no one, no one steps forth. No one stands up. No one raises his hand. No one could be found in all creation who qualified to break the seals and to open the scroll, neither an angel, nor a man, nor any other creature in heaven or on earth. And John says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll, or to look into it. What is this scroll? What does it contain? Why is it so very, very important? Why is John out of control with grief? We'll come back to that in a moment. I want to just pause right here and remind you of one of the the, the essential principles of biblical interpretation that we have to keep close to mind as we study the book of Revelation or any other book in the Bible for that matter. And it's this, that scripture interprets scripture. Would you say that with me? Scripture interprets scripture. So important. What, the, what it means, among other things, is, is that we never have to rely on our own imaginations uh, as to the meaning of a particular passage or, or, or what a particular symbol in Scripture means. Every one of the varied symbols in Revelation is either explained or alluded to at least somewhere else in the Bible, whether in the Old Testament or New. So, to understand this seven-sealed scroll. And John's emotional reaction uh, I'd like to direct you to the book of the prophet jeremiah and and a story that's that's written there in chapter thirty two um, the prophet Jeremiah lived in a day just prior to the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar and and the exile that followed that. God had previously revealed to Jeremiah, and Jeremiah had been warning, had been announcing that to the people of Israel that they were going to be carried away as captives in Babylon, uh, modern-day Iraq, where, where they would remain in captivity for 70, count them, 70 years. At the end of those 70 years, they would return, they would rebuild and they would be restored to the land. At that time, Jeremiah's cousin, meal, I'm pretty sure I'm not pronouncing that correctly, owned a valuable piece of property that he knew on the basis of Jeremiah's prophecy was about to become totally worthless. And he decided that in order to realize at least some profit off the land, he would sell it as soon as he could find a buyer. And Jeremiah happened to have been imprisoned by King Zedekiah for prophesying the impending defeat and the exile. I think Zedekiah was probably a prosperity gospel guy. You know, don't no negative confessions. Don't tell me I'm about to be conquered. The Lord told Jeremiah that... Uh, that Hanamiel was going to offer the land to him and uh, and that he should go ahead and buy that land and to accept it as though it was really worth having. And because the time would eventually come when that land would, in fact, be very valuable again. And why was that? As it, It's that because the Lord had disclosed to Jeremiah that they would be taken down to Babylon, he also informed him that they'd gonna, they were going to be returning. And when they returned, then the land itself would be worth far more than it was in that day. So we're told in Jeremiah 32 verse 8 that when Hanumiel came to the prison and offered the land to Jeremiah, he agreed. The title deed was written up, it was sealed, it was hidden away in an earthen vessel. And though Jeremiah purchased the land himself, he would never take possession of it. Um instead, he was going to inform his heirs of where that scroll, that sealed scroll, uh, the title deed to his inheritance, was located. And when after 70 years, the people of Israel returned uh, to the land, a man would go to the court and he would say, this deed belongs to me. I am Jeremiah's heir. I have the right to break the seals and take possession of the property. Hundreds of years later then, in the Roman world, in John's day, as far as we know, the only legal documents distinctively sealed with seven seals were last wills and testaments. So John would have had no confusion about what he was seeing in the right hand of the one seated on the throne. Um, It was an instrument of ownership that could be opened only by a legal redeemer, a rightful heir. So with that in view, we can begin to see somewhat clearly the meaning of the seven-sealed scroll that John saw in the right hand of God the Father. It's the will that represents Jesus' identity as heir to the world. And the title deed. When the, when the angel asked who's worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals, It was another way of saying, who is the rightful heir? Who can say, I have title to break these seals, title to claim the world for myself, it belongs to me. As the scroll is open, Jesus Christ receives his inheritance as the Son of God. In Psalm 2, a messianic psalm. The Lord says to his son, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples after he had died on the cross and, and then rose from the dead. I read in Matthew 28:18, Jesus came and said to them, "All authority, all authority in heaven and on earth, has been given to me." But now we have to return to the question: Why was John weeping? Why was John out of control with grief? Why the initial outpouring of tears? Think about this. If, in fact, no one was found worthy to open the scrolls, if there was no heir to the throne of creation, then history would go on as it has since the fall. The earth would remain in sin Under the curse of Satan's dominion, God's plans for the redemption of Israel, the salvation of the world would never be realized and he would be found to have broken his word regarding specific future prophecies and promises. In short, evil would have prevailed for all time and all eternity. Remember that when Adam sinned in the garden, Uh, the active rule of humanity over creation was forfeited. Creation itself at that time was subjected to the curse. Lucifer or Satan became the ruler of this world. And the Bible promises that the second Adam, what, what Paul referred to as the second Adam, the one who is fully God and fully man, Jesus Christ, will restore the world to its rightful rule. As fully man, a descendant of Adam, Jesus is qualified to fulfill the original calling of humanity, which was to exercise dominion over all the earth, and to subdue it, to restore the conditions of paradise throughout the entire world by creating a new heaven and a new earth. And as fully God, as the the only begotten Son of God, he has the power, he has the authority to fulfill this calling where Adam failed. So that's why John weeps at the prospect of of eternity without a Redeemer. There may have been another dimension as well. For, For more than 60 years, John, the Apostle, the friend of John, the brother of James, one of the two sons of thunder, had placed all of his hope in Jesus Christ as his Messiah to to ultimately turn the world right side up. And this means that, that if heaven's search for a worthy heir failed, so would his confidence in Jesus Christ. In his gospel, John recorded these words of Jesus in chapter 12 as he anticipated the cross. Jesus said, now is the time for judgment of this world. Now is the time for judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, that is Satan. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself enter the lamb don't miss that in chapter 5 we see the beginning of God putting everything in its rightful place by placing everything in the hands of the right person in verse 5 comes John's answer and one of the elders said to me weep no more Uh, declares Jesus' accomplishment. He declares Jesus' unique right to open the scroll. And as he does that, he identifies him with, with two titles taken from the Old Testament. The first is the Lion of the Tribe of Judah. I mean, we love this. We love this title, don't we? I mean, lions are just so cuddly, right? It's a symbol of power. The symbol of authority. We find in we find it in Genesis forty nine, the occasion there is is Jacob's or Israel's blessing of his sons. And his firstborn was Judah. Genesis forty nine, beginning at verse eight Judah, your brothers shall praise you, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub, from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people's. That phrase in verse 10, until tribute comes to him, is probably better translated the way the NIV has it, until he comes to whom it belongs. Until he comes to whom he belongs. The International Standard Version may be even better. It says, until the one comes who owns them both. It's pointing to a particular person a descendant of Judah, a member of the tribe, until the one comes who owns them both. That is both the scepter and the ruler's staff. That one has come in the person of Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The second title by which the elder in verse 5 identifies Jesus is the root of David. And that title comes from the prophet Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump or the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and and the fear of the Lord. So from the stump, from the stem of the family line of Jesse, who was the father of King David, would come one on whom the Spirit of the Lord would uniquely rest. One of the labels by which the Jews spoke of Messiah was son of David. Everybody understood that Messiah would be a descendant of the king. Here in Revelation 5, in the court of heaven, all questions regarding Jesus' identity as Messiah are finally put to rest. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. How has Messiah Christ, how has Yeshua Mashiach, Jesus the Christ, conquered by overcoming the evil one? By living a sinless life. By giving his life as the full and final sacrifice for the sin of all the world. By rising from the dead and in rising from the dead, defeating death itself. By ascending into heaven and sitting down at the right hand of the Father, his work complete. Go with me then to verse 6. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Having heard the announcement from the elder, John looked, surely expecting... To see the lion of the tribe of Judah. He expected to see a powerful lion. Wasn't that what the elder announced? But instead of a lion, he sees a lamb. And again, notice the description. Every word in this passage matters. He's between, he's now between the throne and the four living creatures. And among the elders. Last week we saw the four living creatures as being the ones in closest proximity to the throne. And the 24 elders surrounded them. Now, in this description, the lamb is closest to the throne but he's simultaneously among the elders. Figure that out. Is it possible, I'm not sure I know the answer to this question, but I think I might. Is it possible that by this description, his full divinity and his full humanity are on display? That is, he's closest to the throne But he is among the elders. He's among the people. He is both God and man. Notice also that the lamb is standing. He's not lying down. Nevertheless, even as he stands, he appears as though he had been slain. The crucified, resurrected, glorified one. Remember the one day John the baptizer saw Jesus coming toward him and he he cried out in a loud voice, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The lion is the lamb. The lamb is the lion. The marks of Jesus' death are still present on him, imprinted even in his resurrected body for all of eternity. And in the uniting of those two symbols, the lion of Judah and the lamb that was slain, we see the, the uniting of two biblical themes. The lion is a symbol of majesty and power and rule and authority. The lamb is a symbol of meekness and innocence and sacrifice. Lions conquer. Lambs submit, lions roar, lambs go to the slaughter. Some of you have read C.S. Lewis' well-loved series, The Chronicles of Narnia. And in that series, the great golden lion Aslan is a symbol of Christ. Rules in majesty, roars in triumph, conquers evil. But his real triumph comes only after he submits to being put to death by the satanic white witch. You remember the story. When Aslan is, when the stone table is broken and Aslan is resurrected, the the kingdom of Narnia is freed from its bondage to perpetual winter. The springtime of the world arrives. And that story just contains profound symbolic echoes from this book of Revelation. Isaiah the prophet wrote of this lamb, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The lamb in John's vision has seven horns and seven eyes. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. What do we do with that picture? Well, the image of a horn... In both Old Testament and New Testament is a a symbol of power. It's a, in fact, an instrument of power. That is, that, that overcomes by, by displaying, by exerting overpowering strength. In scripture, an animal's horn speaks of power. And seven is the number of fullness. So the lamb that, that was slain has full, complete power, and authority as a result of his death and his resurrection. As the book of Hebrews says, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Completely. Completely. As Jesus himself declared following his resurrection again, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The seven eyes John identifies as the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And again, uh, this represents the one Holy Spirit of God, the number seven being a representation of completeness, of wholeness, of perfection. They speak of the omniscience, the all-knowingness of the Lord, his perfect awareness, his perfect knowledge, and with that his perfect wisdom. In verse seven, John continues, and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him, who was seated on the throne. Look at that. And notice the the boldness of the Lamb. He doesn't hesitate to approach the very throne of God and to take something from the hand of God. And by releasing the scroll into the hand of the Lamb, God the Father affirmed the Lamb's perfect holiness and his complete and utter worthiness to take the scroll and to open it. Hundreds of years later, or earlier rather, Daniel saw the same great event in a vision of his own. Daniel 7, I saw in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. I want to tell you about the supremacy of Christ, of his complete and utter authority. No sooner had the Lamb taken the scroll from the hand of the one seated on the throne. Then waves of worship were set in motion in heaven. How how many of you have participated in the wave at a stadium? You, you've been a part of that, pretty much all of us, right? One time or another, and, and you get up and, and it moves and it just circles, circles the stadium. It's stupid, but it's fun. <laughs> waves of worship are set in motion in heaven. Starting with the four living creatures, the 24 elders, verses 8 to 10, when he had taken the scroll, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, and language, and people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Those heavenly beings, those four living creatures, 24 elders who in chapter 4 were worshiping the one seated on the throne, now fall down and worship the Lamb. And they sing a new song. Angels singing isn't a foreign concept to most of us, is it? We often think of angels doing just that. Now, something occurred to me this week as I was preparing. Do you, do you realize that there's only one place in all of the Old Testament where we read of angels singing? It's in Job 38. And there it says that the morning stars that are mentioned there are angels. Some translations call them the sons of God. But it says that they sang together at the creation of the world. There are some scientists, Christian scientists who believe, not Christian science, but scientists who are Christian, (laughs) who believe that in fact, Creation was sung into being. I don't know if that's true. Pretty cool thought. Marty reminded me between services that in The Magician's Nephew, in the Chronicles of Narnia, um, Aslan comes out of the darkness singing, and as he sings, creation comes into being. Awesome picture. So Job 38, the morning stars, the angels sang together at the creation of the world. But then that ancient song of the angels was stilled. It was silenced. What happened? Sin came in. It marred the creation. And from that time that the sin came in, we never read again of angels singing. At the birth of the Lord Jesus, there was that multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill to those on whom his favor rests. And we normally think of them singing those words, don't we? But in fact, we, we read that they said them, not sang them. But now here, In Revelation chapter 5, as the Lamb of God takes the scroll from the hand of the Father and and prepares to break the seals, they break forth in what? Singing. In singing. The old song of the angels was the song of creation. The, The new song is a song of salvation and it centers on the accomplishment of the cross. And then the next wave of worship begins. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The the wave that, that joins the first are angels Myriads of them. What's a myriad? A myriad means literally 10,000. So here we have not a myriad of myriads, but myriads of myriads. 10,000s of 10,000s. How many is that? I don't know. A number so fantastically large that it can't be counted. To that astronomical number, for some reason, just for good measure, John adds thousands of thousands or additional millions. And notice in verse 11 that John heard not voices of plural of that many angels, but the voice, singular, of many angels. They sang with one voice. What must that have sounded like? And as they do, they declare the worthiness of the Lamb to receive His full inheritance. Finally, finally, not to be left out, the rest of creation joins in with them. That's going to include you and me Will be numbered in that crowd, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might for ever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. And that wave began in the began in the throne room spreads from there throughout the entirety of creation. Can you imagine? Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth worship the Father and the Son and those who led the wave originally chime in again saying amen and again falling down and worshiping him. Paul saw this scene in advance when he wrote to the Philippians regarding Jesus Christ. God has highly exalted him bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Amen. You know, we saw last week that the, the scene in chapters 4 and 5 takes place following the rapture of the church, and that, that means that That if you've trusted in Christ as your Savior, if you've recognized him in your life as your sacrificial lamb, you'll be there. You'll be there. You'll be part of that third concentric wave of worshipers along with the rest of creation. Declaring to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. I mentioned earlier that in chapter four, the, the worship was centered on God, the, the creator. In chapter five, the focus of worship is on God, the redeemer. And as I bring this to a close, I'd like to again ask you this question that, that, that is the start of what I hope will be an ongoing conversation right on through the book of Revelation. And the question is, what is worship? What does it mean to be a worshiper? And are you a worshiper? One of the things that this passage and many others in the scriptures tell us is that worship isn't mindless singing of words on a screen or in the pages of a hymnal. Nor is it the invention of nice things to say about God. Neither is it working yourself into some Self generated emotional state, but it is instead the thoughtful recognition of who God is, of what He has done, what He will yet do, because He has promised He will, and how completely worthy of all of our praise He therefore is, and responding accordingly, not just with the words of our mouths but with the obedience of our hearts and lives. But worship is also much, much more than an academic response to a download of theological information. J.I. Packer wrote that we've got to turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God. By turning each truth that we learn, he said, about God into a matter of meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise. In other words, we need to worship God on the basis of truth and allow that truth to transform us, to produce worship within us. And when the Spirit of God takes up residence within us, when we allow truth from God's word to thoroughly permeate and transform our minds, as Paul said in Romans 12, 2, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then our hearts will inevitably overflow, overflow in exuberant worship. As I was preparing for this teaching As often happens, I was reminded of an old hymn that that we used to sing in church when I was a child. It was written clear back in the 19th century. For those of you who are wondering, I was not born yet then. But what it conveys is still incredibly powerful for me. The title of the hymn is Beneath the Cross of Jesus. Some of you know this hymn. But the second verse says, Upon the cross of Jesus, my eyes at times can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me. And from my stricken heart with tears, two wonders I confess, the wonders of redeeming love and my unworthiness. Part of being a worshiper is coming to truth about ourselves, the reality of our unworthiness, the reality of our inability to ever meet God's righteous standard, and then is to be overwhelmed with the greatness and the grace of God expressed to us through the cross of Jesus Christ, and then to overflow with gratitude and praise. Isaac Watts. once said one thing I remember that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this amazing passage in Revelation 5. Lord, may we take it to heart. May we Reflect on it, meditate on it, chew on it. Lord, would you, through it, remind us of who you are, of who Christ is, of who we are. And in that, Lord, may we become as recipients of of the amazing grace that you've extended to us in Christ. May we become great worshipers. What we know not, teach us. What we have not, provide us. What we are not, make us. For the sake of your kingdom. For the glory of Christ. Amen.